Paris, 1897. Eschewing the Moulin Rouge for the evening, painter Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec pays a visit to La Sorie, a club closer to his art studio. La Sorie attracted a diverse clientele. Its owner, Madame Palmier, served painters, writers, butchers, rag traders, and the belle d'Henri that Lautrec was best known for painting. But tonight, Lautrec would find inspiration in a different muse. Bouboule, Madame Palmier's French bulldog, who was sitting at, or more accurately, on top of the bar with the same gravity and sense of purpose as any of the surrounding bohemians. The Trek was clearly struck by this dog about town. He captured the scene in a lithograph titled At the Surrey. Bouboule sits at the foreground of the dingy club, looking apoukamique, but not out of place. Though the French Bulldog was a relatively new breed at the time, it had already woven itself perfectly into the decadence of turn-of-the-century Parisian life. The Frenchie's newfound place in city society reflected a greater phenomenon, as the Industrial Revolution brought about new jobs and roles for humans that centered around city life, so too did dogs' purposes change. I'm Bud Bacone, and I'll be taking you on a walk through history as we look at the centuries of purpose breeding that allows certain dogs to be perfectly adapted for life in city bars, parks, and cramped studio apartments. Though, Babul, you might want to take it easy on the Bordeaux. I don't call it the hair of the dog for nothing. from the AKC Archives. Since their time as French dogs done we, Frenchies have established themselves as one of the most popular city breeds around. The AKC releases yearly breed rankings, a sort of... Uh, American top 40 of dogs. And the Frenchies, charting in as the number one breed in both New York City and San Francisco in 2019, are a verified coast-to-coast hit. You can picture them equally at home peeking out of a backpack on the A-train, or covetously nestled next to a baguette in a bike basket. But what was the city dog before the city? Our image of the Metropolitan Pup makes it all the more difficult to envision their ancestors centuries prior. Standing up to an enraged bull. The story of the French Bulldog begins not in France, but in Britain with the English Bulldog. As examples of the historic breed, I'll introduce Crib and Rosa. Yikes. Uh... Crib and Rosa, as depicted in an 1817 painting by Abraham Cooper, were the dogs the historical breed standard was based on. The bulldogiest of bulldogs. 
Weighing in around 50 pounds each, with muscled torsos and big, blocky skulls, they were about twice the size of the modern French bulldog. More bouncers than barflies, Crib and Rosa would tower over their cousin Baboul if they were to join him in Paris for some varouge. Which is okay, because we are no longer in the realm of pudgy and petite companion dogs. Crib and Rosa were fighting dogs, bred for generations dating back to the Middle Ages for the sport of bull baiting, a popular attraction formed. All the cockfights and bear pits were sold out. Their strong jaws were designed to clamp onto the nose of a bull and not let go until the burger-to-be was pinned to the ground. Whoa there, Bessie! Excuse me, uh, Mr. Bessie. Fortunately for bulls and the dogs, a rare pang of humanity led Parliament to pass the 1835 Cruelty to Animals Act making bull-baiting illegal in Britain. This greatly reduced the risk of workplace injury for dogs like Crib and Rosa by greatly reducing their workplace, which soon led to a canine unemployment issue. Fortunately for Crib, Rosa, and their bully cousins, there were multiple factors that led to further development of the English Bulldog. And the English had already started to see the Bulldog as a national symbol, after all. There is no upper lip stiffer than one made for chomping on a significantly larger foe. John Bull, an Uncle Sam-like cartoon personification of the United Kingdom, was often drawn with a Bulldog at his heels. The association was so strong that influential lexicographer Samuel Johnson defined the breed as... Bulldog, a dog of particular form, remarkable for its courage. So particular to Britain, they are said to degenerate when carried to other countries. Degenerate when carried to other countries? Let's uh, dial back the spoiler, Samuel. We'll get to France soon. We just have to check in with the Nottingham lacemakers first. Just as Britain banned bull baiting, it was also starting to see the effects of the Industrial Revolution. Around Nottingham, the center of the lace-making industry, new machines made lace-making more profitable, but poor quality roads and footpaths made travel to a centralized factory difficult. Instead, workers churned out curtains and doilies from cramped quarters within their homes. To preserve their noble national symbol, Nottingham breeders began to select smaller bulldogs, better suited for cottage industry companionship. Over a few generations, dogs that were as big as Rosa and Crib shrunk down to Rosebud and Cradle, until finally becoming more of a Rosehip and Bassinet situation. Patent taxes and further mechanization of the lace industry in the mid-1800s pushed Nottingham's lacemakers and their little bulldogs across the channel to Calais and other lace-making centers of France. In your face, Samuel Johnson. Rather than degenerating outside of England, the friendly and diminutive bulldogs arriving on French shores have already become quite different from the dog defined a century earlier. 
The exact lineage of the breed gets murky around their arrival in France. As complex lace market forces bounce lace makers between France and England, it's likely that outcrossing with local breeds from both countries led to further physical and temperamental differences from the English Bulldog, such as the Frenchy signature bat ears. By the 1870s, industrialization drew workers to cities, and France entered into a cultural golden age. Paris's population surged, and the newly French bulldog followed right along. Locals even began calling it the Bulldog Francais. Uh, the 77 vintage pairs nicely with grilled salmon or game. In 1880, a group of Frenchy fanciers and breeders began to meet weekly in Paris, forming what was likely the first French Bulldog Club. An early club member was Madame Palmier, owner of La Sarie and more importantly, Bouboule the Bulldog. Said to resemble a French Bulldog herself, Palmier found a similar diversity among the Bulldog fanciers that she did in her bar's clientele. Artists, writers, LGBT people, and the demi-monde all found companionship in the odd new breed. Just as the fierce English bulldog symbolized a courageous national identity in Britain, the smush-faced, bad-eared little dog came to mirror the liberation and nonconformism of Parisian life. And as it often goes with those darn nonconformists, Soon, everyone else followed suit. French bulldog clubs cropped up in the U.S. and, after some inane grumbling about mongrelization, the U.K. If the AKC American Top 40 were accessible via gramophone record, you'd hear the Frenchie, hardly in existence for a century, breaking into the top 10 breeds for the 1910s. Paris may be for lovers, but there are lots of cities for dog lovers. Many companion breeds proudly bear the names of great cities they were bred in, without getting too obnoxious about the local sports teams. Now, buckle up and hold on to your complimentary presso packets because it's time for a travel montage. First stop, Brussels and the Brussels Griffon a dog for the types who insist that French fries are really from Belgium, who'd like a dog with the same shrewd sense of detail, the Brussels Griffon tiptoeing onto the scales at a maximum of 12 pounds. These compact companions are alert, active, and easily trained. Their little faces carry wise, human-like expressions, which the rough-coated variety can accompany with a dignified beard. And the breed's backstory would make any cosmopolitan social climber proud. Originally bred from stable-dwelling rat catchers, the Brussels Griffon rose its way through the social ranks to become the favored breed of Marie Henriette, Queen of the Belgians. And on the subject of regal breeds, let's head to Tibet to find one who really looks the part. The Tibetan capital Lhasa is home to the Lhasa Apso, an ancient breed created to serve as a sentinel in palaces and Buddhist monasteries. They are appropriately spiritual for monastery dogs. With their silky hair at full length, Lhasa Apsos are said to resemble Tibet's legendary protector, the snow lion. 
They've also long been bred by the Dalai Lamas. The AKC archive holds registration papers of dogs bred by Tenzin Gatso, the 14th Dalai Lama. Now, for those of us that cannot dedicate the time to style a vertical foot of dog hair, or do not quite feel worthy of the protection of a miniature snow lion, Lhasas can also wear a short puppy clip. Either way, the intelligent but willful Lhasa Apso is a great partner for a creative and motivated go-getter who might like some extra security in their city home. They are sentinel dogs, after all. Let's not intrude. Vamanos Akuba! Here we find the national dog of Cuba, named after the capital city, the Havanese, descended from Bichon-type dogs brought over by European colonists circa 1600. The breed was embraced by wealthy sugar and tobacco planters who could afford a friendly toy dog with no job beyond companionship. Communists, of course, do not take kindly to jobless aristocrats. And during the Cuban Revolution, a handful of Havanese fled to the U.S. with their owners. The majority of today's breed is descended from those few refugees. The silken-haired Havanese looks remarkably similar to the Lhasa Apso, despite being bred half a world away. Like the Brussels Griffon, the Havanese is sensitive to praise and easily trained. Good girl. Now, after all that jet-setting, I think it's time we headed back to the good old U.S. of A. Uh, customs won't be thrilled about this Cuba stamp, but I think uh, urgent dog journalism is a perfectly valid reason to visit. Uh, we'll take the scenic route while I get this figured out. Now, if I had all the time and airline miles in the world, I'd love to continue on to Italy to check in with the Bolognese or head to Madagascar to visit the Carton de Tourlière, or go back to England to see the Bedlington Terrier. I think you get the idea. Take a look in my sketchbook. I, I can't help but draw the dogs I meet. Despite their wildly varying origins, you can see a lot in common with these city breeds. They all share a few key traits. Size, intelligence, sociability, and quite often really stylish hairdos. And as urban living has become more accessible for all classes, some of these companion breeds with highfalutin origins have found time to hang out with us commoners as well, which is great, because Lhasa Apsos are really fun to draw. All right, we've got one more city named Dog to visit. He's waiting for me now at the harbor. Or should I say, Haba. Here he is. This is Rhett. Rhett, of course, is a Boston Terrier. Not only does Rhett's breed hold the distinction of being the state dog of Massachusetts, but Rhett himself is the mascot of Boston University. An active, muscular little dog who is always dressed for the occasion with snazzy tuxedo markings, it's no wonder that both state and college would want to claim him as a mascot. Though I imagine they refrain from discussing the breed's snoring habits in polite company. Come on, little guy, let's get you back to campus.
Just like the city of Boston, the Boston Terrier is a proud, distinctly American creation. And just like the city, the origin story of the Boston Terrier cannot be told without first starting in Great Britain. Let's gear up for another AKC Breed Biography. Picture this. The British ancestors of the Boston Terrier, centuries prior, standing up to an enraged bull. Hold on, we've been here before. Let me skip ahead. Uh, English bulldog, bred for centuries, bull-baiting outlawed, national symbol, influential dictionary writer, predicts breed degenerate. Ah, yes. Yeah. Here we go. To prove Samuel Johnson wrong once more, the first dog that was less of an English bulldog and more of a Boston Terrier was actually bred in Liverpool in the 1860s. We can now take a moment to appreciate that this did not result in a breed called the Liverpudlian Terrier. Sounds like a terror to house train. Instead, likely in hopes of breeding a smaller bulldog, an English bulldog was crossed with a white English Terrier. It's an extinct breed that just didn't catch on due to its looks and fragility. The match resulted in a healthy brindlin white puppy named Judge. Judge changed hands a few times and crossed the Atlantic to find himself in the possession of a Bostonian named Robert C. Hooper. At 32 pounds, Hooper's Judge was much larger and fiercer than today's Boston Terrier, but just as with the French Bulldog, Judge's descendants were bred smaller and sweeter to fit their city setting. Generation by generation by generation. Now, unlike the French Bulldog, Bostons have a much tidier family tree. All Boston Terriers can be traced back through the stud books to Hooper's Judge, making them the savior of archivists and arborists everywhere. As the distinct new breed took form, some fanciers squabbled over nomenclature. Are these dogs not Bull Terriers? Being part Bulldog and part Terrier? No! These are Boston Terriers, being Terriers bred in Boston. But eventually, all were able to settle on a name. And so, in 1893, the American Kennel Club registered its first dog of the breed, formally recognizing the Boston Terrier. The All-American breed also found its time at the top of the AKC American Top 40 charts between 1929 and 1934, as the Great Depression likely pushed owners to acquire smaller dogs that were easier to keep fed. In better times, the Boston has been steadily popular in its country of origin, never dropping far below the top 20. In 1926, historian E.J. Rousick quoted an unnamed breeder who shrewdly summed up the Boston's place in U.S. dogdom. Fashion has invariably turned traitor to the last breed, even while decreeing the next invoke. This Boston Terrier has never been considered the Vogue because from the moment he was bred, he became so perfectly identified with the American ideals, with what a dog should be, that he was accepted without question. And on that patriotic note, so ends another AKC Breed Biography. I've got to admit, Rhett's got the right idea here. I should head home to New York and get some rest. good to be back. And one of my favorite parts of riding the New York subway is dog spotting. The 
MTA has a rule that all pets on the subway must be, and I quote, enclosed in a container and carried in a manner which would not annoy other passengers, which, as all dog-owning New Yorkers understand it, means that if your dog's in a bag, she's welcome on board. Though maybe a Labrador in an Ikea bag with leg holes isn't exactly what the Transit Authority was envisioning. While subway admission isn't guaranteed, there are many breeds larger than the average purse or pouch that are also well-suited for city life. Greyhounds, for example, are surprisingly well-adapted to city life. Affectionately dubbed the 45-mile-per-hour couch potato, the breed seems to have two speeds, fast-forward and pause. When they're not zooming laps around a securely fenced dog run, greyhounds are sweet, calm, and content to spend the day zonked on the futon. And if you want a breed to rival the skyscrapers, even Great Danes can fit into apartment life with the proper precautions. Temperamentally, the breed is well-suited for city life, being as gentle as they are giant. In 2018, the New Yorker profiled Hendrix, a Harlequin Great Dane who was successfully and stylishly sharing a Brooklyn one-bedroom with two humans, a cat, and a pit bull. And the human's secret to harmonious co-living? Accepting that it was more Hendrix's apartment than their own, and that they needed to make space for her. Devoting precious NYC square footage to 140 pounds of dog is not a lifestyle choice for everyone. Now, to get a better idea of both why and how people live with big breeds in the Big Apple, we'll head to Midtown and meet Emily, Clea, and Mara. Mara lives in a small apartment with Emily and Clea, two Leonbergers. Though they're named for the German city of Leonberg, they're a bit different from the city-named lapdogs we've met. Weighing an average of 130 pounds with lush golden coats and wise, dark faces, this is a breed that writer Jane Kramer called a Jazankenswerk of a dog. And she wasn't hyperbolizing. The breed was developed in the 1840s by one man, Heinrich Essig, to be a lion among dogs. By crossing massive breeds like the Newfoundland and the St. Bernard, he sought to create a breed loved by royalty and well-to-do commoners alike. Essig was as much of a marketer as he was a dog breeder. As a town alderman of Leonberg, he took the opportunity to imbue the breed's name with some local pride and began giving his new Leonberger puppies to every royal he could find, from King Umberto of Italy to Empress Elizabeth of Austria to the Prince of Wales, later King Edward VII. A very good dog. With all these friends in high places, the Leonberger caught on very quickly. Though primarily bred to be a companion dog, the breed's size and strength also meant it has long been valued on farms as a versatile working dog as well. Mara honors this athletic history by training her Leos for agility out of that same small apartment. Most New Yorkers are not able to recreate the conditions of farms and palaces of 1800s Europe to keep a powerhouse like the Leonberger happy. But committed owners like Mara wouldn't have it any other way. 
When you go to a New York City dog run, you see far more than just frolicking toy breeds with the occasional Hendrix the Great Dane or Clea the Leonberger thrown in the mix. You see a diversity of dogs, many originally bred for the purposes that extend far outside city limits, such as herding or hunting. And city folk are as diverse as their dogs. Small companion dogs like the French Bulldog are perfect for the average city dweller and will undoubtedly remain popular. But as dogs like Clea and Hendrix prove, there are breeds that can fit into any city lifestyle. It's just up to the humans who live with them to be able to accommodate their needs, whether that means a, a daily walk and the occasional brushing, or fully converting your apartment into a competition-quality agility ring. With the proper care, any dog can be a city dog. back tales from the akc archives visit akc.org to learn more about all things dog and find bonus materials for this episode follow us on instagram at american kennel club on twitter at akc dog lovers and let us know what you thought of the show founded many many dog years ago akc is the recognized and trusted expert in breed health and training info AKC is all about responsible dog ownership and dedicated to advancing dog sports. No humans were harmed while making this show. <laughs>